0: Hello and welcome to season eight of our Fixing Healthcare podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Corr, also host of the Popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was a CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertpearlmd.com. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Bergelman, He's the Edmund W. Littlefield Professor of Management at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and Director of the Stanford Executive Program. As a world's expert on strategy, he has authored multiple books and consulted over 100 companies around the globe. Robbie will be asking him questions about strategy, and after every couple, I'm going to turn the tables and ask Robbie to connect what Dr. Bergelman has said to our current healthcare system. Robert,
1: welcome to Fixing Healthcare. Thank you. This is our eighth season of Fixing Healthcare, and it's focused on leadership. You are one of the world's leading academic experts in strategy. So let's begin with a fundamental question. Why do leaders need strategy?
2: Robbie, thank you for this question. Uh, So uh, over the years, uh, I have come to the insight for myself, at least, that uh, leaders need strategy because they are actually needed to help their team, their organization, uh, to continue to be successful. Now, uh, maybe I should say a few words about what I mean by strategy, because it's one thing to say you need it, but you also have to know what it actually is. And so if that's okay, I can say a few words about that. Please do. So for me, strategy is, in first instance, a mentality a way of looking at the world. And it is therefore something that I, and I think leaders, uh, ought to do on a continuous basis, as opposed to just on certain occasions, like once a year or once every six months. So, And as a a mindset, as a mentality, uh, for me, it involves basically the linkage between five words. I like to say strategy is the thinking that drives action to be successful in competition and collaboration. So thinking, action, success, competition, and collaboration.
1: Robert, in healthcare, people often talk about leaders needing vision. What do you see as the relationship between vision and strategy?
2: Robbie, I think that is such a wonderful question. And I've actually given that some thought. So with vision, just like I did with strategy, I I try to cast it in terms that everybody can understand. And so for me, a vision means a future that we're going to try to make happen. I can have a vision for my personal life. I can have one for the group that I'm responsible for. I can have one for the entire organization, even at the level of societies. We may have a vision which is really a future that we're going to try to make happen so some leaders are good in articulating that so others are may not sometimes not be so good so that's why i sometimes say look you know, not all great visionaries are great strategists and not all great strategists are great visionaries and your question really is what is the link between the two so for me in, to be uh, to give you a quick answer i i would say this visionary leaders uh, are putting themselves and their team, their organization in a situation where they are going to stretch themselves to the limits of their capabilities, because that's necessary to be able to make that future happen. So now, if, I, if you are the leader that puts me in a position where I am and my team, we are going to stretch ourselves to the limits of our capabilities. I would say you have a very big responsibility as a leader, because you should know or try to ascertain what the limits are of our capabilities. Because if you allow me and my team to stretch ourselves beyond these limits, beyond the breaking point, we will actually only play once. Now, the relationship to strategy, in my mind, becomes suddenly clear. Because I have said at the beginning, leaders need strategy to help their team, their organization, to continue to be successful. And so in that answer now, the word continue is the central word. So the link between strategy and vision is that the strategist is going to be concerned with the forces that evolve over time, that change, that affect the capacity of the individual, the the team, the organization, to actually realize that vision. So there is a strong complementarity in my way of thinking about vision and strategy between those two words.
1: Let me dive a level deeper. As you well know, healthcare is, I will say, in a crisis right now. Uh, The U.S. spends twice as much as any other nation in the world. We have quality outcomes that lag 12 of the other industrialized nations. Burnout is now 60% or more of clinicians. Do you think it's more important for leaders in healthcare to maximize what their organizations are currently doing or to push the frontier of what is possible today?
2: Well, Robbie, I think my answer to that question is that both are important, because being able to do well in what you are currently doing provides the resources and the wherewithal to be able to do what is going to be next, which may be a step function change. So the way I think about it is today, there is today a possibilities frontier in what you can do in relation to what you want to do. That is a function of the best technology that is currently available and the best way of organizing that is available. And so not all organizations are on the frontier. Uh, Some of them are inside the frontier. In fact, consulting companies are very good at figuring that out and telling you you are not, and here's how we can help you. But so the, the first question is, are we actually best in class? Are we on the current frontier that's defined by the current technology, best technology, best way of organizing. And of course, that that frontier will in sort of an incremental way evolve over time because it's not static, it it keeps moving forward, but that's not enough. It's it's necessary, but not sufficient for long-term survival and survival because in the long term, there's going to be a new frontier. There is going to be a frontier that is a step function away from the current one and that is so because there is new technology and new ways of organizing just in the healthcare system now. Think about you know generative AI. Everybody is now talking about that. That would be a new technology. It, it will also be a new way of organizing. That is a different frontier than the one on which today's best players are actually operating.
0: Robert talks about how leaders need to avoid stretching people too far until they break. We've talked many times about burnout on this podcast. Have leaders gone too far in what they've asked doctors and nurses to do?
1: Jeremy, you hit on something very important and why I am critical of leadership in healthcare today. As Robin points out, new forces constantly impact every industry, and how leaders respond determines their effectiveness. Over the past two decades, we've seen growing pressures on healthcare as hospitals consolidate and drive up costs, Drug companies use patent and legal maneuvers to extract exorbitant pricing, and insurers have put in place prior authorization to limit medical expenditures. Each of these has negatively impacted doctors and nurses, but rather than finding ways to help clinicians using new technology and improved operational flow, leaders have just demanded more and more from people. Physicians feel like they are on a treadmill that is going ever faster, and those that haven't gotten off Find themselves unable to keep up. As you point out, Robert, the world is changing quickly. The stock market's volatile. Inflation is a major problem. Maybe there's the great resignation among workers. How do leaders know when something new is a passing phase or a true strategic inflection point?
2: Yeah, you know, it's usually clear when the strategic inflection point is already there. I actually call it a period of crisis. It's not a point, although it sort of sneaks up on us sometimes. Uh, but it is really a period of crisis. And the, uh, as the Asian people uh, like to say, crisis really always has two aspects. It has an aspect of threat, uh, which means if the, if you don't change, you may see your prospects diminished, even though you may not disappear. Your prospects are diminished. Eventually, you may disappear. Or And or there is also an opportunity aspect of that. That If you can change in time, uh, you actually may be getting onto a new uh, trajectory of thriving, if you want, and surviving. What leaders need to do is, I believe, is separate signal from noise. There's a lot of noise in the world. Not every change is a real change. You know, my my former co-teacher and CEO of Intel, Andy Grove, used to say, not all paradigm shifts are paradigm shifts. So, how do you know that it is a paradigm shift? And so here I have developed a little framework that I call the strategy diamond that actually links, on the one hand, the position that you currently have in a product market space. It could be a geopolitical position as well, or, or a position in your personal life, and the competences that you have to occupy that position to defend it, and to leverage it. So that's a question about linking strategic position with competence and capability. And the second aspect has to do with what I would call the strategic statements that we make versus the strategic actions that we take. And by strategic actions, I really mean the consequential actions. That Those are actions that commit us in a certain direction that have um, uh, binding trade-offs, because if I, if I have chosen direction A, I may no longer be able to do direction B. And these, these actions taken or not taken, they are difficult to reverse. So now, uh, with those two linkages uh, in my diamond framework, I can ask two questions that then I would suggest provide a way to begin thinking about whether a change is really a strategic change, in other words, a consequential change, one that is going to require us to do things differently. And so these questions are related to the first one is, do we still have what it takes to be successful to win? The second one is, are we still doing what we are saying? And if the answer to these two questions is no, and I get that Answer in my executive team, in the people that really are in charge of the organization, that there is no longer a, if you want, in fact, Grove and I call it consonance. There is now no longer consonance. There is dissonance as a result of the no to those one or, or both of those questions that I would think is a signal that there may be truly a strategic inflection point, truly a strategic change, in other words, and consequential change. And so that would then lead me, if I were the, in charge, to pursue this further and to find out why is this so? Why do we no longer have what it takes? Or we may still have some of it, but not all of it. And we may not have some things at all, Uh, why is that and how can we fix that before it's too late? And similarly, in what ways are we no longer doing what we're saying? Why is that and how can we fix that? So that is my quick answer to your question. It's sort of a diagnostic tool that leaders can use. And it doesn't require buzzwords because it's simple questions. Do we have what it takes? Are we doing what we're saying?
0: I like the simplicity of Robert's framework. Do we have what it takes? Do we do what we say? When it comes to healthcare, what is your perspective?
1: Jeremy, I don't believe that we have what it takes. In the 21st century, we need to simultaneously raise quality, increase access, and improve affordability for patients. And the current system is incapable of doing that. Medical leaders continue to believe that the best we can do is achieve two of the three, and that only at the expense of the third. Our current medical system. It's fragmented without the level of collaboration and cooperation needed to improve performance without further stretching clinicians. It's paid on a piecemeal basis that we call fee-for-service. The technology we use, particularly electronic health record systems, is cumbersome and out of date, and there's no leadership structure capable of making the improvements needed in a timely fashion. But rather than looking forward and transforming the current healthcare system, medical leaders, They're overwhelmed by the political and economic challenges they face. American medicine, it doesn't have what it takes. And despite promises to address the challenges that exist and provide value-based medical care to patients, healthcare leaders don't do what they say, but instead they continue to cling to the approaches of the past. Along those lines, how can healthcare leaders avoid getting distracted by shiny new things?
2: That's a question you have to rephrase for me.
1: So as you say, there's always something coming on the horizon, great promises about technology that will do amazing things for patients and save hours in the day and cure cancer. And yet, despite all of these multimillion dollar entities coming into the healthcare world, we see very little progress in terms of prolonging life or curing many of the diseases that are designed to do. They all sound great. Uh, many of the AI applications of the past, we could say, were shiny things that sounded like they would revolutionize medicine, but they didn't turn out to be the case. Now you've mentioned generative AI. How can leaders figure out which technology is going to actually make a difference? For patients, and which ones, as they say, are just shiny new things that are that look great, but actually don't deliver underneath the surface, they're not really gold.
2: That's a, such an important and, and, in some ways, difficult question to answer. But I'll I'll try to get at it. The first thing I think, and it speaks actually in a way. You know, I hadn't really fully thought that through, but now I, in real time, I do some of it. It does actually speak to what you have always put forward as a grave, if you want, a grave problem in the healthcare system is fee for service. Right? So if the new technology, first of all, is expensive to get it, it's number one. So therefore, if it's expensive to get it, we must use it because otherwise we, how can we continue to survive? We spend so much investment on this new technology and nobody is using it. So I'm going to try to maximize the use in order to be able to uh, you know, recoup my investment and to be able to continue to invest in the future. The first thing I think is we don't want doctors, really, the medical people, to be too much, if you want, business persons. Because the moment that the business persons, the finance people, are in charge of this, there will be on the one hand, for competitive reasons, we must have this too, this new technology. And secondly, once we have it, we must, of course, doing the things that I just said, is getting it to use. So this is actually, you know, this is a real, in real time answer that I'm giving you as I'm thinking about this. So that actually brings into, maybe it brings into play the question of strategy. Who is actually setting the strategy? and how is that strategy setting informed by the if you want the ethos the purpose the insights of the medical people the doctors and you know and the and and i'm not just the doctors but the, i would say the people that have a, a strategic medical or a medical strategic mentality so i think that is something that is probably going to be a component of training of the medical uh, people in medical schools to actually learn see that distinction more clearly as opposed to letting that letting the finance side you know such as private equity and so forth that that who are all oriented towards maximizing returns right it's a business decision how do, you, how do you prevent the doctors, them to, to actually take over from, from the doctors? That's a long answer, but it does bring me back to actually uh, the question of how do we train in the, maybe in the medical schools, how do we actually train our doctors to develop a strategic mentality, which really means are we in charge of our destiny as we define it? in the ethos and the values and the purpose of why we went to medical school and become doctors in the first place, or are we going to let this be replaced even more than it already is by a business, uh, you know, finance, maximize return, maximize profit orientation?
0: I find this idea of doctors needing a strategic mentality provocative. What are your thoughts?
1: Jeremy, I believe that this is one of the most important concepts that Robert provides, both for physicians in general and leaders in particular. My observation is that after a decade of doctors telling the world about burnout and the negative impact it has on patient care, that if anything, the problems today, they're worse. The solution isn't to yell louder, but to take a strategic mindset and set of action. Rather than seeing ourselves as powerless, I believe we need to figure out how we can drive change. How can clinicians gain strategic control in order to move the thinking in that direction and away from some of the egregious financial type approaches that have compromised care?
2: The business side, it has its own logic. And... If indeed there are large investments involved, it is not unreasonable if you want to be able to continue to survive to let the logic of business be a pretty important voice in those decisions. But what I am always trying to say is that if you are a real strategist, then you ask the question, who is ahead in the situation? Are we ahead of them? or are they ahead of us? And so now the the doctors increasingly face the challenge of even in the space where the business side has become relatively more important than it used to be, how the doctors can stay ahead of the finance people and be able to say, yes, you are right in some ways, but I'm going to show you why from the strategic point of view from the medical point of view from the purpose from the ethics from what we are doing in the medical field how in fact we must maybe do this different than just thinking about maximizing the returns there is one thing that i have not yet said but which I is crucial in this situation that is so a strategic mindset i think always ask the question also in a situation where there is forces involved right and these forces are different if i look at my life personally versus if i'm running a group versus when am i running an organization or even when i am the governor the president of the united states or of china the forces are different but it is always a question about dependence versus influence right? so If my dependence is very high and my influence is low, I am subordinated. So in the situation where the finance folks get very, very, very influential, and we are therefore very, very dependent on them, we are going to be subordinated. And my, my challenge is, how do I go from subordination? I don't want to go to dominance, where I am. but at least to interdependence. That is where I am dependent, but I've also a lot of influence. And so the doctors will have to learn or the medical people will have to learn to understand first what are my dependencies, especially on the business side. And then what are the various, if you want, levers of influence that I can use in order to maintain at least an interdependence, at least maintain, we still continue to drive the direction as opposed to the business side is driving is, is, is driving the direction in which we move. That's my very long answer to your question.
0: Doctors would seem to have a lot of influence, and as a patient, I would want them to have independence with the business folks, if not dominant. But they don't. Why is that? Jeremy,
1: sure, I, mean, I think the main reason that in the medical culture, doctors value their autonomy and they've resisted joining together and choosing and following strong leadership. The individual doctor, that person's relatively powerless, but a strong, well-led medical group, that has tremendous influence. But that's different than just putting everyone's name under a single banner. It requires that people work together as one to maximize clinical outcomes in the most efficient and effective way possible. And that can't happen unless there's strong leadership with a structure that's able to institute change. And even in medical groups today, that often isn't the outcome. Doctors cling to individual autonomy, thinking that it results in better clinical outcomes, but rarely is that the case. In practice, the price they pay is to cede control to insurers and financial leaders. Without influence, clinicians will never have the ability to make the most important decisions. And a thousand doctors each doing what they personally prefer, that can't match a thousand doctors aligned and working as one for the good of all. I've heard you refer in the past that healthcare has what you called, I think, country club competition. What did you mean by that? And do you think that the pressures of today are going to change that going forward?
2: All right. Yes. So by country club, so I I usually make a distinction between, between country club competition and bare knuckle competition, right? And so country club competition means to me, well, if you're in a country club, let's say golf or tennis, you know, you... First of all, it's already a privileged thing to be in it. Usually, although there is, you know, there is lower level clubs as well. But but so you are in a club, in a country club, and you play games, and even the ones who lose, right, are still doing okay because first of all, it's fun. We all do reasonably well. You, Robbie, you do better than I. You know, and you're a better tennis player than I. So. You know, most of the time I lose to you, but you know we enjoy it, and you buy me a drink. The the winner always buys a drink for the loser. So, that's a situation where everybody can sort of be okay, still doing okay. And as I have suggested, in it's in that sense that actually, the, to my mind, the healthcare system is what I call an ultra stable system. Uh, There is too many people making too much money for anybody really who is currently engaged in it to really want to change it fundamentally. Hey, there are spaces in which I can even make more money or the spaces that are not as efficient and therefore I find a way to make that more efficient and I make some money too. But the system still maintains the same, basically. The equilibrium doesn't really change. That is what I mean by by a country club competition. And to some extent, I must say, I think, especially in the United States, that this is still pretty much how it has been. Now, it may be changing, and we can talk about that, but that's what I mean by country club competition. It's kind of an ultra-stable system because everybody has there is nobody who has a real incentive to radically change it. Even the ones who are not the winners in the absolute sense of that term, they still do pretty well.
1: In that context, as you mentioned earlier, physicians are trying to gain more control. And one of the ways that they are doing that is by joining up with private equity. You deal with private equity across dozens of industries. What advice do you have for healthcare leaders for a strategic perspective as they consider this option?
2: So private equity is a business. It is not... In healthcare vision, or mission, or purpose, private equity is a business mission. They want to make as much money as they possibly can. And that's not good or bad, that's just simply the way it is, that's what I earlier called the logic of business. Ultimately, of course, this becomes inconsistent with medical purpose, ethics, and values. Because (laughs) that's why I used to say, you know, long ago, I said, do I really want my doctor to become a business person? No, not really. Nevertheless, business and the medical space are intersecting. And that's, there is a logic for that too. And in some ways you could claim that's why more resources get into it. That's why we can do more and so forth. But it pays the is that the private equity Whose natural and completely legitimate logic of maximizing returns and money becomes inconsistent with the medical field. And therefore, I have said, that's why I said earlier, finance is always right until shown wrong by strategy. So how does how how does the MD the, 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 the doctors, and I really I think in the end it's going to have to be the doctors, right? How do they Gain the capacity to create at least an interdependency, where they go. Yeah, you guys want to do this and that and that, and I know you know you have you you have paid a lot of money for us and so forth. But here is what we can do well, and what we want to do well. And by the way, you know, if we cannot do that, many of us will no will no longer be there, and we'll go try to go somewhere else. And we can because we're capable, we are smart, we are you know, we have a lot of information. So the balancing that I spoke about earlier has to come from having you know making the doctors strategists, not business strategists, but make them strategists. Understand dependence and influence. Make sure you never get subordinated by the business side.
0: The country club competition Robert talks about seems to be true when it comes to insurers and hospital systems, but given the problem doctors have reported, it seems that doesn't apply to clinicians. You've written about private equity in healthcare. Do you agree with Professor Bergelman?
1: Jeremy, I concur with him that private equity is focused on making profits and is skilled at doing so. The challenge for physicians is that the tools that private equity uses to maximize revenue and generate profits. They often go against the mission and purpose that led people to become doctors in the first place. Providing care with fewer staff, doing unnecessary tests and procedures, and excluding patients with low-paying insurance, that's not what's in the best interest of people. And often, these approaches result in poor clinical outcomes. I see selling to private equity as a deal with the devil. It's not that you shouldn't work with private equity, but you must go into the deal with your eyes wide open. As long as everything goes well, you'll be glad. But when the financial expectations of private equity aren't being achieved, the pressure that private equity puts on you as a clinician, will become problematic far more, I think, than even the pressure doctors are feeling today. And if the relationship ends abruptly, it's the doctors who could end up being left holding the bag. On this Fixing Healthcare podcast, one of our guests was Eric Topol, one of the leaders both in technology and healthcare, but as well as healthcare thinkers. And in trying to address this question that you're grappling with, he talked about the need for physicians to form a union across the country. Do you have views as a leadership, as a strategic expert on whether joining joining and forming a union Is the right solution to the problem of not having the influence necessary to battle against the financial forces?
2: You know, Robbie, this is a fantastic question. And I I, I can make a recommendation. I I, I usually don't do that. But there is a wonderful book that was just uh, published by Daron Acemoglu and Simon Johnson from MIT. Acemoglu is one of the leading economists of his generation. And it's called... Power and progress. And it, it goes, it's a thousand year uh, examination history of how technology has affected people and societies. And so basic, what they basically say, and I actually tend to agree with it, that AI, for instance, if we take that AI, is used often as an, in order to increase average productivity. And how do you do that? Well, by eliminating labor. So to deal with, with, with that sort of situation, they recommend, and I agree with that, it's not a matter of you shouldn't use generative AI to replace people. You should use generative AI to increase marginal productivity, which means you get people to do better and more than they currently are doing. You don't replace them, you just get them to do more that's an incre- a real increase in productivity, and then you need a countervailing force. Because then the question becomes, how are we going to divide the fruits of that new marginal productivity? And that is where they suggest that unions are actually important. Maybe the doctors, in order to be able to create a real countervailing force, will need in some ways to organize themselves beyond, you know, you have the the American Medical Association and so forth. I don't really know much about how that all works, but a new way in which this force can exert its force, which it currently cannot because it's too fragmented, too differentiated. uh, That is really my response to this. So I think, yes, there is going to be need for a new countervailing force.
1: Robert, you've written, I'll say, more than 100 uh, different Stanford business cases. And in that process, 200. And that process, you've interviewed uh, 200 leaders, uh, many of whom uh, span different industries. Can you name a couple who you thought were at the front of the strategic leadership pack and why you selected those individuals?
2: Yes. Okay. I, I Let me think about it for a moment. Um, the ones that come to my mind in the past, the one I had great, let's say, the, the great privilege of of actually doing research and teaching with was Andy Grove from Intel, who I think was an ex- exceptional uh, strategic leader. Uh, even And he was exceptional in the sense that he himself recognized his own uh, if you want, yeah, his, his own blind spots, right? Uh, for instance, uh, you know, when he was asked in a large, large group of people in Mountain View, California, when when a historian at Harvard wrote a, a, a biography of him, he was asked by the publisher in front of 500 people, what grade would you give yourself as CEO of Intel? And he said, B. Plus. And the publisher got, only a B plus, why is that? And Andy said, well, I was able to get Intel to uh, exploit a very big opportunity, which is true from t- t- when he was started, the CEO was 3 billion, by the time he left, it's 27 billion. That was fantastic performance, but he said, I was not able to get Intel on a new growth trajectory. And then she, the, it was a woman, she asked, well, and what grade do you give to the biographer? And Andy said, B+. Plus. <laughs> and, and the biographer asked, why? He said, because he left me off the hook. <laughs> a, 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 a lost opportunity. <laughs> so, okay. So that's one example. And that's one that I know very well. Uh, today, I will So of course, Steve Jobs in his own way, way was, although I think he was a greater visionary than a strategist right but that's okay in the end he did extremely well but today i i will i will give a couple of examples so i think one that i don't know personally but i have learned to have great respect for is is, is nadella of of microsoft who basically once said something you know i'm one of those guys who read something and then I, when I, when something sticks out sticks into my mind when i think it's really a great insight and he said once you know the key for a company is to stay relevant. Right? So survival depends on maintaining relevance. And so he has done that. He has turned uh, Microsoft into one of the top five uh, high technology companies in, in the world.
0: What do you think of Robert's choices?
1: Jeremy, I concur completely. Both Andy Grove and Sachin Nadella are examples of great strategic leaders. Each saw a strategic inflection point and didn't hesitate to take action. Grove, along with Gordon Moore, recognized that Intel's largest source of revenue, which at the time was computer chips, was going to become a commodity. And he and they shifted the business model to microprocessors. And Adela could see the impact that generative AI would have on medical care and business overall, and acquired OpenAI and dozens of other AI companies to leapfrog Google and the other established players in the field. I also concur with Robert that Jobs was more of a visionary than a strategic leader, recognizing the power of the personal computer and the iPhone long before anyone else could. Where I'd give him an A for strategy was that he wasn't afraid to go all in when the opportunities to create a new industry presented themselves. Had he moved slower, other companies like IBM might have run with the idea and beat him to market. But what he knew was that the company that had the dominant market share would be the one to make the rules and establish the standards, and he did everything in his power to place Apple into that premier position. And that ability of jobs to understand and take advantage of market dominance is an important component of a strategic mindset, something that Robert alluded to earlier in his comments. Robert, you've also seen poor leadership. I won't ask you for any names. What have been some of their fatal flaws?
2: Okay, to my mind, uh, the first one is what the Greek call, the Greeks call hubris, which is excessive self-confidence. And hubris usually is associated with a, a bias that I call excessive self-preoccupation. And that's ex- Especially dangerous for the CEO of a company that is at the point in time where he or she is CEO, is very successful. They become, there is a danger of excessive self preoccupation. It's understandable because, you know, we are the leader, we're the best. What have we got to learn from anybody else? And so it becomes often quite internally focused as opposed to trying to continue to say, well, how are the other guys looking at the situation? I look at it in this way, but how are they looking at it? Well, maybe they're not as good as I. But at least I try to always continue to understand the dynamics in the situation. I think another thing is that they, uh, as all well, these things are related to each other. But in my own work, I talk about about this uh, sort of the I have a little framework that maps debate against capacity. Against capacity to 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 uh, against capacity to to sh- to change to change. And so some leaders have too little debate. Right? They shut people up, or they have created a culture in which all the leaders basically do just their own thing and they don't challenge anybody else and they don't want to be challenged about anybody else. Right? So that's too little debate or at the other extreme, where the only thing they do is debate. And that's again, again, when you are very successful, you may end up doing that because you know there is no external competition, so to speak anyway. So how do you stay on top of that curvilinear relationship? Not too little debate, but also not too much. That I think is what, the, what, the, what I have earlier mentioned, the strong leaders are able to do you know, stay there and at the top of the curve. And the ones who are not so good or end up maybe losing what they were good at is either too little or too much on that curve.
1: From a strategic perspective, Robert, how should leaders in healthcare think differently than leaders in other industries, given that their decisions impact people's health and the risk of dying?
2: We do want the medical people and especially the doctors to be good strategists right? and i didn't say business strategist because that's not necessary i say strategists, which means how are we going to stay in control of our own destiny and our destiny is informed by what we want to do as doctors the values the norms the purpose the vision that we have for what it really means to take care of people Right. And, you know, prevent them from being sick, which like you, you always did, you know, how do we do that? But for those who are sick, how do we deal with them you know, in the best possible way? That's a strategic, I would say, that's a strategic, that should be turned into a strategy question. That's number one. Uh, how, what does it mean to be a medical you know, professional strategist? What does that really mean? And then if to the extent that actually it is possible to to do that, then I I would propose what I would call the golden rule of strategic leadership in the medical field. The, The way that I would formulate that is I would say the doctors would make sure that human common sense, which is translated in medical purpose, right? terms, in medical terms, but human common sense, translated in medical terms, always checks the business common sense. If that can happen, if if we can achieve that, I think it will be a better world. And you know, I even think that the business people who are good business strategists, when confronted with very good medical strategists. there will it will increase mutual respect and it will will actually lead to this interdependence that i have alluded to earlier rather than the doctors become subordinated by the uh, by the business guys
1: final question robert how can leaders apply strategic thinking not just to their work but also to their personal lives
2: Yes, and so so my answer to that question, Robbie, is that if you are a professional, these two things tend to be you know intertwined, right? Because you can you don't go home and you don't can't think you can't say now I don't think about anything anymore because your best ideas may may happen while you are you know doing your morning exercise or so. So therefore, it is kind of you can't really put a, a wall between your professional work a professional life I don't think and your and your personal life I I personally believe that you can do that but it is possible I think to do the things what I just said you know project confidence try to identify the sources of temptation that you do want to stay away from that you don't want to do and again, I think if I summarize it in relationship to what I said earlier, I would say try to understand in the, any situation, even in your, by the way, that's true in your per, in personal life as well. Probably use this for marriage consult, consultation. Uh, is, is how dependent are you versus how much influence do you have? Never feel subordinated. Anticipate change in those things because dependence and influence at any moment in time do not stay fixed. How are they changing? In what directions are they changing? Don't stretch yourself beyond that breaking point. That's a temptation that I want to avoid. And as I said earlier, manage time as opposed to let time manage me.
1: Thank you so much for being with us today. Listeners will learn a tremendous amount about strategy, leadership, and I believe be better able to lead their organizations and to control their personal life. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, sir. Thank you all.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcast, Spotify, your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review and visit our website at FixingHealthcarePodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Corr. Have a great day.